You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 36, for February 22nd, 2009. Warning. This episode contains sexual situations, explicit language, violence, and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. I am Chris Lester, your producer, host, and head writer. And it is really good to be talking to you guys again. I just wish that I was not down to the wire again with this episode. I have really got to plan these things out better more in advance. Uh, Anyway, so... A few things of note. Number one, thank you to everybody who contributed to the feedback show. We had a ton of stuff to talk about, as I'm sure those of you who have listened to the first two parts have already noticed. There will be one more part in the feedback show, and I'm hoping to get that out to you guys by next weekend. And a big thanks also to Dan Sawyer and Kitty Nakian for doing the feedback shows with me and making them a lot more fun than talking about the emails and voicemails and stuff would be without them. As you've noticed, we tend to get into a lot of interesting side conversations that are engendered by your messages. So, good stuff, and thank you to everybody who's participating. A few cast changes of note for this week. In this episode, Miriam will be played by Paulette Jackson, who has taken on the understudy role. Martha Puskas, who normally voices Miriam, was having some trouble this week with the cold from hell, which has screwed up her voice something royally. So she'll be back for the next chapter, but right now we are working with Paulette for the time being, and I'm really appreciative of Paulette for jumping in and volunteering to take on the role in a pinch. So thank you very much, Clippy. You rock. Other appearances this week by Steve Rickyberg, who returns to the role of Miriam's assistant, Peter. Andrea Martin and Mark Smith, who are contributing a couple of cameo voices in this ep. Mindy Smith from Firefly Talk, who's continuing her role as Fiona's mother, and Chris Miller of The Secret Lair, who returns for a little piece of this chapter as well. And a big thanks, as always, to all of my cast members. You guys put in so much hard work, and this show simply would not be able to happen without you. So thank you very much to everybody who has been helping to bring Metamorph City to life. Now then, let's get on with the show. We've got a long chapter for you guys today, something like 50 minutes of story. Here to introduce it is our dear friend, yes, he's back, the Uber Nemesis returns. Here is T. Morris. I am T. Morris of tmorris.com and imaginethatstudios.com. Author of Podcasting for Dummies, All a Twitter, coming this summer, and the creator of the Podio Book. And I am the Uber Nemesis of you, Chris Lester, he of the forget me not blue eyes, who must shade them with his flowing locks of hair as I read the story so far. 
seriously, Chris, I heard you were in trouble and I wanted to make sure that I was here for you because, you know, that's what friends do. I want to make sure that you have got your back covered. You hear what I'm saying? So listen, if I screw anything up or if I need a, a tweak here or a tweak there, you know where to ping me, okay? Great. And now, here is the story so far. Six months have passed since Miriam Bakhtavar was captured by the Vampire Crime Syndicate. An elder of the Psy Collective, Miriam was targeted in revenge for a destructive raid on one of the Syndicate's front companies, a raid that Miriam had made possible. Rather than kill her, though, the vampires have turned Miriam into one of their own. The Vampire Prince of Metamore City, Malcolm Arvalos, has been using Miriam as a mole within the Psy Collective, spying on her fellow telepaths and feeding them disinformation about what the vamps are up to. Miriam despises her new masters, but the mystical connection of the blood bond has made it impossible for her to disobey. Forbidden to kill herself, Miriam set out to do some good with her new existence by rehabilitating Lena Greyhaven, a thrall who had been broken and traumatized by Malcolm's cruelty. Meanwhile, Fiona Hinconnell has been facing a private battle all her own. Haunted by missing memories of her childhood, she has spent the last six months in psychic therapy hoping to find the reason for the gaps. With the help of her lover, Sasha, she finally found the source of the psychic block, a dark and terrible memory that someone had deliberately hidden from her. As chapter 25 ended, Fiona entered the memory, determined to know the truth that has been kept from her for so many years. And now, Chris Lester's Metamore City, making the cut. Chapter 26 Fiona lay on the bed, pencil in hand, and frowned down at the notepad in front of her. She chewed on her bottom lip in concentration. So this X is a number? That's right, Pet. And it could be anything? (laughs) Mother chuckled. Not quite anything, Fiona. We have this equation that tells us something about it. She pointed to the collection of symbols on the paper. 3x plus 15 equals 48. There's only one number x can be if the equation is true. Your job is to figure out what it is. Fiona nodded slowly. So it's like a mystery. The equation has the clues, and x is the guy we're trying to catch. Mother's eyes twinkled. Now you've got it. Smiling, Fiona looked back at the paper again. We're going to have to get rid of that 15 if we're going to get x by himself. Can I subtract the 15 so I can just tab the 3x? You can, but you also have to subtract 15 from the other side. The equation is like a teeter-totter. If you take someone off one side, you have to take somebody off the other side as well, or it shan't be in balance anymore. That makes sense. A moment of arithmetic later, she had 3x equals 33. She paused. I can do the same thing with multiplication, right? Or division? Mother nodded. Well, that's easy. X has to be 11. Very good, Fiona, Mother said, grinning. Congratulations. You've just learned how to do something most children don't sit it until they're 12 or 13. Fiona made a face. They must be pretty stupid, then. That wasn't hard. Mother laughed, a musical sound that filled the tiny studio apartment. <laughs> no, pet. The stupid ones don't learn that until sometime later. You're just that smart. She planted a kiss on Fiona's forehead, and Fiona giggled. Let's do another one. 
Mother took the notepad and pencil, flipped to a new sheet of paper, and wrote down a new problem. As she was handing it back to Fiona, a knock sounded at the door. A frown creased Mother's beautiful features. She held the finger to her lips. Fiona nodded, and Mother went over to the door. She gazed out the peephole for a moment, then came back, her frown deepening. My next customer's here early, Mother said softly, all the joy drained from her voice. I'm sorry, Pet, but we'll have to return to this later. Into the closet with you now. Pouting, Fiona picked up her pencil and notebook and went over to the closet. Her pillow, blankets, an old telephone, and Mr. Thomas were all inside, waiting for her. She flopped down on the pillow and wrapped her arms around the old stuffed horse. Mother closed the closet doors and went back to the front of the flat, where the knocks on the door were getting louder. Fiona shuffled her position so she could see out through the crack between the closet doors. Mother opened the door, revealing a young man in his late teens. He had a lean, hungry look about him, like the dogs who prowled the street at night. He wore an old jacket and scuffed-up jeans, but his shoes were too nice for a street rat. He looked like somebody trying to look like a street rat, and not doing a very good job. Egan? Mother said by way of greeting. Her voice was flat, all business. You're almost half an hour early. If you'd prefer to book your appointments earlier, I'll be happy to oblige. But you'll not be getting extra time without paying for it. Fiona hated this part. She understood what Mother did for a living. How could she not? And she guessed that there were probably worse ways to make money. But she didn't like the fact that the men came here. It hadn't always been this way. Mother had been part of the guild once and they had had a nice place called a parlor where she went to work. Mother could meet her customers in one room while Fiona stayed with the other women's kids in the playroom, safe and out of sight. But for some reason, the guild had kicked her out. Mother wouldn't say why. And now they were on their own. Most of the women who got kicked out would work out of special hotel rooms, but Mother said that those hotels were all owned by the vampires. It was very important to Mother that they stay away from the vampires. Her thoughts were interrupted when another voice came from the hallway. Don't worry, babe. He'll pay you. Another young man stepped into view. This one was blonde, sleek, and handsome. He moved like the lions at the zoo, all grace and power. This one wasn't trying to look like a street rat. He was the thing that ate street rats for breakfast. Fiona started trembling. Oh, this is not good. Not good, not good, not good. Mother put out her hand, a warding gesture. Stop right there, handsome. Let's get one thing straight. I don't like surprises. You paid for one hour of my trade, Egan. If your friend here wants to have a go, he'll have to make an appointment like everyone else. Oh, come on, Red. Victor's all right. He's my best mate. Victor showed a wolfish grin. And Egan here said you were so amazing that I just had to see for myself. We'll pay you triple. Cash up front. He pulled out a roll of bills and passed them to Mother. She counted them, then gripped the money in her fist, obviously thinking hard. Fine. Just this once. Don't sprain this on me again. Understand, Egan? Sure thing, Egan said, nodding eagerly. You still only get one hour. She crooked a thumb at her backside. And if either one of you go anywhere near the back door, it's another hundred. Victor grinned again and passed over a few bills of his own. I think we can deal with that. Mother grimaced, but she took the money. 
I'll just put this in the lockbox. She nodded to the bed. Make yourselves comfortable. What followed was hard for Fiona to watch, but she couldn't bring herself to not watch either. She didn't like the look of that Victor guy at all, and she felt that she owed it to Mother to keep an eye on him. Mother had told her what to do if she ever got hurt during her work. Stay hidden, use the phone in the closet to dial emergency services, and leave the phone off the hook until help arrived. She ran through the plan in her head, silently repeating it like a litany. Stay hidden, call emergency, wait for help. Fiona pulled the phone a little closer, then looked out again at her mother and the two men. She could feel their emotions from here, the tangled web of thoughts and feelings that resulted when Mother joined with other spookies. Sometimes that bond was something beautiful and special, like a group of musicians playing together. Mother had said that those were the times she actually enjoyed her job. Tonight, though, the music of their thoughts was sour and out of tune, full of jangling discord and competing rhythms. There was pain in the group mind, and embarrassment, and shame. And running under it all, a wolfish melody that heard that pain and laughed. After an hour, Mother pulled herself out of the link. All right, she said firmly, doing her best to hide the pain and exhaustion Fiona knew she felt. That's it. Your time's up. I haven't finished, Victor growled. His voice was rough with exertion. He stood at the edge of the bed with Mother on her back in front of him. He didn't show any sign of letting go. That's not my problem, Boyle. You can pay for another hour, or you can finish your own time sale. She made to push herself back on the bed, then went abruptly still. Fiona felt her mother's shock as she was suddenly rooted to the spot. Egan, who had been taking a breather and watching them, now sat up with a look of alarm. What are you doing, Vic? Getting my money's worth, Victor said tightly. Vic wasted too much time talking in the beginning. Vic, she didn't start the clock until we got started. I watched her. Come on, man. Either pay up or go. Victor spun on Egan then, letting go of Mother as he rounded on his friend. Mother gasped and scrambled off the bed, out of his way. You taking her side, Egan? You back in this stupid flatliner over your best mate? Egan stood up and faced Victor squarely, putting a finger to his chest. You're out of line, Vic. Red's providing you a service, and one you've been having a damned hard time getting for free, I might point out. Victor snarled, but said nothing. You want that service? You pay for it. Our bet was only good for one hour. You want more than that, you can pay for it yourself. Actually, you can both get out of my bloody flat. Egan and Victor spun to face her. Mother had crept over to the desk while they were arguing and pulled out her little gun. She kept it trained squarely on Victor her bright green eyes burning with fierce anger. Fiona gasped, then grabbed the phone and dialed emergency services. She covered the earpiece with her hand so that Victor wouldn't hear the voice of the dispatcher. Outside the closet, there was a long, dangerous silence. Red, no! Egan whispered. His face had gone white. You heard me. Put on your clothes and get out. Victor took a step toward her. She pulled back the hammer on the gun, the sound unsettlingly loud in the otherwise quiet room. He stopped, still a good two meters away from her. You're going to put that gun down if you know what's good for you. Victor's voice was barely above a whisper. Mother's lip curled back from her teeth. Not one more step. Get your things and get out. I won't tell you again. For an instant, no one moved. 
Then Victor snarled and shot out his hand toward Mother. In the same instant, she pulled the trigger, but an invisible hand pushed the gun barrel to the side. The shot went wide, striking the wall behind Victor. Before she could take aim again, the gun twisted out of her hand and flew across the room, landing in the far corner. Fiona gasped and covered her mouth as the same invisible force picked Mother up and slammed her against the wall. Victor was on her a moment later, wrapping his hand around her throat. His other hand balled into a fist and struck her hard, breaking her nose. Mother's pain echoed through Fiona's mind even louder than the gunshot. You stupid, Monday-loving cunt! Victor's eyes were alight with madness, a rage so complete that he was literally frothing at the mouth. You want pain? You must like it, because you're asking for it. He hit her again across the mouth. Vic, no! Egan ran over and tried to pull Victor off of her. Let her go, man. You don't want to do this. Get off of me! He grabbed Egan in a telekinetic grip and threw him bodily across the room. In that instant of distraction, his grip on Mother weakened. She spat blood in his face, then struck out with a kick to his unprotected groin. Victor staggered back, bent double in his agony. Mother fell to the floor, scrabbled to her feet again, and went for the gun. Egan intercepted her, wrapping her up and holding her arms to her sides. Everybody hold it! Egan shouted, the panic edging into his voice. You're both... just stop it! Let me go, Egan! Mother's face was covered in blood, already swelling up, but her eyes were still full of green fire. Let me put down that animal while we still can! I'm not letting you shoot Vic. He tried to kill me! I'm not going to let him do that either. Victor staggered to his feet, bracing himself on the bed. Fiona couldn't see his face, but she could see his body shaking with rage. Silence fell over the room again, save for the panting of the three adults. You saw what she did? Victor's voice sounded half-strangled with pain. Fuck, man. You had it coming. What the fuck were you thinking, hitting her like that? (laughs) He wasn't thinking... Mother glared at Victor from across the room. He's a bloody beast, Egan. A killer. I saw his mind in the link. One day, you're gonna wish you had let me kill him. Egan sighed. God damn it. He half-dragged, half-carried Mother over to the corner opposite the door to the flat. He turned her towards the wall, putting his body between her and Victor. Vic, get your shit together and get out of here. Victor stared at him a moment, then began to dress. I'm so sorry, Red. Vic, your apologies. When he had dressed, Victor went over to the door and let himself out. Egan let go of Mother and went to dress himself. He was just pulling on his shoes when the sound of sirens rose in the distance. Victor burst back into the room, fresh rage burning in his eyes. You fucking whore! You set us up! Before Egan could react, Victor snapped out his arm toward Mother and clenched his fist. There was a loud crack, and Mother's neck bent at a sickening angle. She fell to the floor and lay still. Mama! Fiona forgot all about the plan. She burst from the closet, ran past an astonished Victor, and knelt at her mother's side. Mama, no! Get up, please! Fuck! Egan wheeled on Victor. What the fuck are you doing, man? Victor didn't respond at once. Fiona bowed over Mother's body and sobbed. I... Bitch set us up. Victor said at last, sounding stunned. You think the kid saw? Oh, fuck no. Don't even think about it, Vic. I am not letting you kill a fucking kid. Well, what are you gonna do, Egan? Cops are gonna be here any minute. She's gonna tell them what happened. Not... Egan stopped, 
took a breath, and started again, his voice marginally more steady. Not if she doesn't remember. Fiona looked up then, her eyes widening as she realized what he was talking about. No! She tried to run. Egan caught her halfway to the door. In sudden terror, she grabbed his jacket and pulled. Energy welled up from somewhere inside her, filling her arms and legs. She flung Egan in a half-circle and then let go, throwing him halfway across the room. She stopped and stared at her own hands in astonishment. Comprehension dawned on Victor's face. He laughed. (laughs) Son of a bitch! Kid's an egoist, and a damn strong one. So I noticed. Victor smiled. This changes everything. He gestured and Fiona rose into the air gently suspended by a force that held her just under her arms. Another band of force held her mouth shut. She tried to scream, but nothing came out. She thrashed and kicked, but she couldn't reach anything. Her newfound strength had nothing to act on. Let's go. They ran, Victor dragging Fiona behind him like a helium balloon. If anyone heard them leaving, they didn't open their doors to look out. On the street, people didn't risk getting involved. They bypassed the lift tubes and took the stairwell instead. After descending through four flights, they heard a door open below them and the sound of boots tramping up the stairs. Victor looked over the railing and grimaced. Cops! The telepathic message was obviously intended for Egan, but Victor's focus was erratic and Fiona picked up on his thoughts. We need a mind funk. I'm on it, Egan said, though he didn't sound happy about it. He stopped in the middle of a landing, then pointed to the corner behind him. Victor parked Fiona in the corner, pinning her arms and legs to the wall and locking her jaw shut so she couldn't make any noise. He took up position in front of her, his eyes on her and his back to the stairs. Fiona couldn't move her head, but there was enough space under Victor's arm for her to catch most of what happened next. Two police officers came up the stairs and turned onto the landing at a run. They didn't see Egan loitering there until they had plowed into him. The three men fell in a heap. Hey, watch it! The police officers scrabbled to disentangle themselves, but not before Egan succeeded in touching one man's hand and the other's face. Their eyes went glassy at the skin-to-skin contact, and Fiona felt the echoes of Egan's telepathic power as he reshaped the men's perceptions. Sorry about that, sir, one of the cops mumbled. He blinked and rubbed his eyes, then stepped past Egan and continued up the stairs. His partner followed him a moment later. Neither of them looked once at Victor or Fiona. When they had gone, Victor thumped Egan's shoulder. Good work. Let's just get the hell out of here, Egan said, his mental voice sour. He shook off Victor's hand and continued down the stairs. They exited at the street and dragged Fiona for half a block before taking a lift up to the first level. If Victor was getting tired from using his power for so long, he didn't show any sign of it. They entered a dimly lit parking garage and took her to an old and battered skimmer. Egan opened one of the back doors and Victor deposited Fiona inside, pinning her against the seat cushions. All right, Victor, what did you have in mind? Egan asked, almost snarling at his partner in crime. Why not just wipe the kid's memory and leave her there? Kid's valuable. Egoists this strong don't come around too often. Especially outside the Kratias. We'll get a nice reward from the elders if we bring her in. Egan glared at Victor. You killed her mother, dumbass. You think the elders are going to thank you for that? Victor grabbed Egan's shirt. 
So we don't tell them that, do we? His voice was low and dangerous. He locked eyes with Egan for a moment, then released him. This'll be easy enough to cover. A gang of road mages goes in for a little action. The bitch gets cheeky. They kill her. We happen to be close enough that you heard her psychic scream, followed it down, and found the girl. He smirked. Tragically, the mages had mind wiped her to protect their identities, so we'll never know who did it. He spread his hands. It's a win-win situation. We get to be heroes, and the girl gets taken in by the hive. Couldn't be simpler. Egan nodded slowly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's the only way. He turned his attention to Fiona, who was still lying immobilized in the back seat. He reached out and brushed the hair out of Fiona's eyes. Fiona wanted to bite him or spit in his face, but she couldn't do either one as long as Victor held her. Fingertips pressed into her forehead. She felt Egan's mind start pressing inside her own. She raised a feeble shield to try and block him, but her defenses were as thin as tissue paper. She couldn't keep him out. Tears began to flow unbidden down her face. Hey now, Egan said, his voice gentle. He gave her a sad smile. Don't cry, little Red. It'll all be better in a minute. Sasha opened her eyes and saw Fiona jolt upright as she came out of the memory. Her body dripped with sweat, and she shivered under the air vents mounted above the bed. The shivering turned to trembling, which turned to shaking. Sasha felt the blood draining from her face. Fiona? Fiona looked up at her, her emerald green eyes wide and almost uncomprehending. Sasha felt a fresh wave of horror at the memories they had just unleashed. Telepaths of her caliber were trained from childhood in the use of their powers, not just in how to use them, but in the ethics of what was and was not permissible. The power to alter the mind of another was a deadly serious matter, and the boundaries they were taught were supposed to be utterly sacrosanct. What Egan had done, acting as an accessory to murder and then erasing Fiona's entire childhood to cover up the crime, Sasha shuddered in outrage. There were no words for it. Egan's actions could not have been more abhorrent if he had raped the girl and pissed on her mother's corpse. Her mother? Oh, Eli. Sasha saw it in Fiona's eyes when the full realization of her mother's death finally struck home. It fell on her like an atomic blast, vaporizing the defensive walls that had held her emotions so tightly under control. The deep waters of her mind boiled and spilled forth, a torrent of feelings that rushed over Sasha and carried her along with it. She knelt on the bed at Fiona's side and wrapped her arms around her. Fiona responded instantly, clutching at her and burying her face in Sasha's chest. She sobbed and screamed and wailed as the nine-year-old girl inside her vented all of the grief and rage and terror that she had subconsciously carried but had never been able to express. Sasha held her tightly through it all, saying nothing. She just let her love fold itself around Fiona's heart, grounding her in the quiet, steady proof that she was not alone. It took nearly an hour, but in the end, Fiona exhausted her emotional reserves. Or perhaps she simply ran out of energy. She and Sasha lay side by side on the bed, quietly holding each other as Sasha did her best to soothe the raw, aching hurt inside her. Egan Hunter. 
Fiona sighed, looking up at the ceiling. All these years, and I never guessed. Sasha ran a hand over Fiona's muscular abs. He's dead, you know. Her voice sounded subdued, even in her own ears. Got himself killed on a mission this summer. Yes. Sasha had half expected some sense of vindication on Fiona's part, but the only feeling she got from her was a mild nausea. He was killed by Victor. I'm afraid that doesn't quite qualify as justice done. Tell me about it. Sasha let out an exasperated sigh. (sighs) Those two sociopaths were part of the hive for, what, fifteen years? Why in hell didn't anyone see what they were before now? I suspect they did. Neither Victor nor Egan was permitted to join a breeding cell, even though both were near the top of the power curve in their respective disciplines. Both were career MID, and that sort of aggression is a useful skill in an operative, as I have demonstrated myself. She shrugged. The Hive probably thought they could be controlled. Sasha grimaced. And we saw how well that worked with Victor. She thought about Abby Preston, the telepathic prodigy whom Victor had disappeared with six months ago. Damn it, that poor girl! I can't believe that Elder Bakhtavar just called off the search like that! What was she thinking? Fiona placed her hand over Sasha's and squeezed. Don't underestimate her. Her tone was surprisingly warm and encouraging. Elder Bakhtavar's resources are considerable. Perhaps she suspects a leak within the hive, and she has ended the official search in order to circumvent it. Maybe. I just wonder how much effort she's really going to put into this. I mean, if the elders never even bothered to figure out what happened to you, how can we trust them to take care of this abbey? I understand your concern, love. Fiona smiled sadly. Now more than ever, actually. If not for what Victor might do to Abby, I would hunt him down and kill him myself. If Elder Bakhtavar can bring her home safely, I am willing to give her the chance. Sasha nodded hesitantly. And? What if she can't? Or won't? Fiona looked grim. Brian asked you not to get involved in the hunt for Victor. Now more than ever, I agree. But... I can't lose you! Fiona gripped her shoulders like a woman clinging desperately to a life preserver. Please, Sasha. If Miriam can't get Abby back, we'll come up with another plan, but I don't want you anywhere near that murderer. The passion in her voice was so intense that it nearly knocked Sasha off the bed. She raised a shield against the torrent of emotion and managed to dampen it down to a tolerable level. So this is what an uninhibited Fiona looks like. This is going to take some getting used to. All right. She lowered her eyes and nodded. All right, Fee. For your sake, I'll stay off the front line on this one. She looked back up and raised her chin. Just promise you won't shut me out entirely. If Miriam brings you in, I want to know about it. Of course. Fiona leaned forward and kissed Sasha gently on the lips. Don't worry, love. If there's one elder left that we can still trust to do what's right, it's Miriam. Miriam Bakhtivar stood with her hands on her hips, gazing down at the two thralls before her. They knelt before her naked, their faces burning with shame. Behind them stood Seralina Greyhaven, 
looking fearsome in her black leather corset, tight-fitting designer jeans, and platform boots. Her mother-of-pearl hair was bound back in a ponytail, exposing the elegant lines of her face, and she wore a black choker with a silver medallion. The medallion was embossed with a sigil that would mean nothing to most people, but to the vampires it marked her as Miriam Seneschal, the servant responsible for ordering the affairs of her house. Lena had chosen the outfit for herself, and while Miriam felt that the corset was a bit immodest, she kept her thoughts to herself. It was an obvious display of Lena's renewed self-confidence, and Miriam would readily endure any embarrassment to see that proud spark in her eyes again. Lena paced back and forth behind the two kneeling thralls with the slow, measured stride of a jungle cat. She carried a long flogger, a multi-tailed whip made of soft buffalo hide attached to a wooden handle. She smacked it rhythmically into the palm of her hand in time with her steps. Miriam stood quietly and waited, letting Lena exercise the authority of her position. Peter and Sarah, what am I going to do with you? The words fell from her lips like poisoned honey. The two thralls winced in unison. There are certain laws our mistress has set in place to govern this house. It is my responsibility to ensure that these laws are followed. I thought that I had made these laws clear to both of you. Was I wrong? Have I failed my mistress in this most basic of tasks? No, No, Miss Lena. Lena. Peter and Sarah said together. Ah, then you are aware that you have broken one of our laws. That is good. Now... Can you tell me which law you have broken? Yes, Yes, Miss Lena. Lena. And that is? Peter and Sarah exchanged a sideways glance. No No sex sex between between Teeps and Mundies. They looked up at Miriam imploringly. But But mistress, mistress, it wasn't his, Peter's fault. We... (gasps) The whip came down across their naked backs, eliciting a shared yelp. Lena struck with the falls of the leather cords, not the tips so it merely stung the flesh instead of slicing it open. Still, Miriam felt the echoes of their pain and knew that it was more than sufficient as a tool for discipline. The thralls fell silent, heads bowed. The mistress is here to bear witness. She is not your advocate. If you wish to defend your actions, you may make your defense to me. Yes, Yes, Miss Lena. Lena, they said, subdued. Lena nodded once. After a moment, she touched the whip lightly to Sarah's back. Sarah? Why was Peter not to blame? Though Sarah was addressed, they both answered in unison, as they must, given their condition. We lied lied to to ourselves, the group mind said. We, Sarah, told told Peter that Sarah was a latent deep. Why did you do that? They both blushed. Because Because we... Sarah was attracted to him and wanted to be with him because we, she, wanted to know what it was like, the gestalt. I see. And Peter, you never thought to question her story? Never sensed the falsehood in her? We, Peter, wondered about it. But Sarah is so beautiful that we, he... Yes, out with it, Peter. Peter wanted it to be true. Lena let the words hang in the air as she resumed pacing. The steady thunk, thunk, thunk of her boots echoed in double time by the pounding of the thralls' hearts. 
Miriam could feel them waiting for the lash, waiting for Lena to give them the punishment they deserved. They dreaded the pain, but they also longed for it. They knew that they had failed their mistress, and they silently begged for the punishment to begin so it could end that much sooner. But Miriam knew what they had not yet realized. There would be no end to the punishment for this mistake. Lena seemed to understand that too, and anger warred with pity across the elegant lines of her face. At last she spoke again. So, Sarah lied to Peter so she could experience a gestalt. And Peter let himself believe that lie because he wanted to sleep with Sarah. Does that about cover it? The thralls lowered their heads a little closer to the carpet. Yes, Yes, Miss Miss Lena. Lena. This, despite the fact that both of you have been warned explicitly about the danger of telepaths having sex with non-telepaths. Yes, Yes, Miss Lena. Lena let out a short, exasperated sigh. I could whip you both red for this, but it would be like beating a child for playing near the fire when he's already fallen in. She shook her head, then looked searchingly at Miriam. Wait here, children, Miriam said. She gestured to Lena, and together they headed for Miriam's bedroom on the far side of the apartment. Two of the other thralls were at work in the kitchen. They looked up questioningly as Miriam passed, but Lena gestured for them to be silent. Lena entered Miriam's bedroom behind her and pushed the door shut with her back. Instantly, her air of authority evaporated, leaving her looking weary and troubled. You see why I called you? Miriam nodded heavily, sitting down on the edge of the bed. I do. Lena knelt at her feet, not quite touching her, but close enough that Miriam could feel the warmth of her. Have you ever dealt with anything like this? Not personally. There have been stories passed down from the early days before the collective. Honestly, most of them have the feel of urban legend, exaggerated to grotesquerie to ensure compliance. Evidently, Peter didn't take them at face value. Still, how could he take a risk like that? He's 25, not some addle-brained teenager. You'd think he'd have learned some impulse control by now. I fear that may be partly my fault. Hmm. Peter could have exposed me to the other elders if he learned what I had become. I had to make him a thrall to protect my position, and the compulsions I needed to ensure his obedience were... extensive. She grimaced. You can't suppress a person's willpower that heavily without consequence. A haunting echo of memory ran behind Lena's eyes, and the half-elf shuddered. Yeah, you're right. After a moment, she shook herself and asked, So, what do we do, mistress? I can't let them leave the apartment like that. Miriam imagined the two thralls walking through a supermarket together, moving and speaking in unison. The thought was only amusing for a moment. Clearly not. She shook her head. We may have to separate them. Put one of them in a lead-lined cell to break the telepathic link. Lena perked up, looking a shade more optimistic. Will that put them back in their own heads? No. They've joined into one personality, and Sarah's ego doesn't have the telepathy to find its way home again. The Peter and Sarah we knew are gone forever. Lena's face fell again. So what's going to happen when we separate them? Miriam shrugged. Theoretically, each of them will be left with a copy of the new personality. As long as we keep them from rejoining in another gestalt, their personalities will diverge with time, just from being in different bodies and having different experiences. But they'll both have Peter and Sarah's memories. Yes, 
and they're both likely to have some psychic dissonance from the memories that clash with their respective bodies. She turned her hands palm upward and shook her head, a gesture that barely hinted at how helpless she felt. This is all uncharted territory, but I wouldn't be surprised if I have to do extensive mental reconstruction on both of them just to keep them sane. And you'll have your hands full keeping them away from each other, because they'll instinctively want to reform their gestalt so they can reconnect with what they've lost. She closed her eyes and let out a frustrated sigh. (sighs) I've failed them. I promised myself I would protect these thralls like my own children, but I couldn't protect them from the way my feeding changed them. Lena shifted closer and lay her chin on Miriam's lap, wrapping her arms around Miriam's legs as she did so. Without even thinking about it, Miriam ran her hand over the woman's head, stroking it affectionately. Lena nuzzled against her in response, reveling in her mistress's touch. Is this what I've become? A creature that keeps people as pets and food? But even as she thought it, Miriam felt a warm satisfaction at the way Lena submitted to her. There was a rightness to it, a sense of wholesome pleasure as they reaffirmed the hierarchy that bound them together. Miriam's power over Lena was absolute and unquestioned. She could demand Lena's life at any time, and Lena would be powerless to refuse her. But it pleased Miriam to allow Lena to live, to treat her with kindness and affection, to entrust her with responsibility and allow her the freedom of self-expression. That was the key, Miriam realized. She chose to give Lena these things, and within the protective borders of Miriam's grace, Lena had blossomed like a well-tended garden. Years of manipulation by Malcolm had taught Lena to find her purpose in serving others, but then he had tormented her by refusing to allow her to act on that purpose. Miriam had fed Lena's need to serve in the best way possible, by taking Lena's natural gift for organizing people and putting it to use in her service. All of the prodigious talents that she had exercised as a CEO now came into play in her role as Miriam Seneschal, but she threw herself into her work with an even greater fervor because she was doing it in service to her mistress. Love, talent, and duty had combined into one, and that made Lena fearless. The thought filled Miriam with a fresh surge of affection for the woman. She reached down and gently lifted Lena's chin, directing her eyes to Miriam's own. Lena's mind opened before her as their eyes met, and Miriam poured into her all of the love and pride that Lena had inspired in her. The half-elf soaked up the wordless praise like a plant soaked up sunlight. The fatigue and worry vanished from her in an instant. You have served me well, Sarah Lena. This misfortune with Peter and Sarah is no failure of yours. You are my strong right hand, and you have never faltered. Lena beamed. Thank you, Mistress. Miriam beckoned for her to rise, and she did so. Mistress, what if we let them stay together? It would be inconvenient in some ways, but it might be a lot more humane than breaking them up. She shrugged. We might even find some uses for a pair of cybonded thralls, depending how far their range is. If we can teach them how to multitask. I see what you mean, Miriam said, nodding. She frowned, thinking hard about the possibilities. Right now, Peter and Sarah were doing everything in unison, but if their fused mind could learn to separate tasks into one body or the other, they might be able to turn it to their advantage. For one thing, it would theoretically be an untraceable and instantaneous communication system, 
Anything observed by one thrall would immediately be known by the other as well. Peter had been a fairly gifted telepath, so the range on their mind link could prove considerable, assuming that the rules of telepathic range had any meaning at all for members of a true gestalt. It's worth trying. Can we afford to keep them here full time? Sure. I can put them on housekeeping duty until they figure out how to make their bodies act more independently. You have plenty of other thralls now that I can send out for errands. If you can cover up Peter's absence from the hive, we can keep them here. Miriam nodded. I'll think of something. Her eye drifted over to the phone on her desk, where she saw the message light flashing. Go ahead and tell Peter and Sarah what I've decided. It seems I have other business to attend to. Lena bowed. At once, mistress. She let herself out while Miriam crossed to the desk and called up the message. Good morning, Miriam, the voice of Malcolm Ardvalos said from the phone. His voice carried the tone of paternal indulgence that he favored in his dealings with his subordinates. I know it's likely to be rather late before you get this message, but I'd appreciate it if you would pay me a visit before you retire. Call my secretary when you're on your way. I'll meet you in the parlor. Miriam stared at the phone. Malcolm hadn't summoned her for a meeting in three months, and now he had called her personally? And just left a message? What could be so important that he wouldn't arrange it through his secretary, yet so unimportant that he wouldn't contact her on her mobile? No, not unimportant, just not time-sensitive. Mobile phones can be traced, calls can be monitored. It's important, but security matters more than speed. She looked at the clock. It was 10.30 in the morning, an ungodly hour for a vampire to be awake. Despite his casual tone, she knew that she had better get over there right away, before she cut into any more of his sleeping schedule. She called Malcolm's secretary to announce herself and then hurried up to the penthouse. Malcolm was already seated in his chair when she arrived at the white parlor. He wore his dark red smoking jacket over a set of silk pajamas, which somehow didn't make him look any less dignified than when he wore his three-piece suit. He had the newspaper open on his lap and a snifter of brandy on the coffee table. A lit cigar sat on an elegantly carved holder above an equally elegant ashtray. The scent of smoke was strong in the room, but she could hear the hidden air purifiers working hard to keep up. He looked up from the paper as the secretary ushered her in. Ah, Miriam. Excellent. He smiled, and Miriam felt the now familiar melange of loathing, fear, and adoration that the prince always inspired in her. My lord, she said, bowing. Please forgive my lateness. I only just now received your message. No matter. As I said, I expected you to return late. Please have a seat. He gestured to the couch at his left, and Miriam sat as bidden. Malcolm set the paper aside, then took a sip of his brandy and a puff from the cigar before speaking. You're coming along well, Miriam. I admit I had my doubts when you decided to make that cast-off Greyhaven into your seneschal, but by all accounts you've molded her nicely. And you've taken, what, five other thralls after her? Six, my lord. Aaron Parker joined us in October. She suppressed a wince at the memory. Aaron was a senior honor student at Westfall who worked part-time as Miriam's office assistant. She hadn't wanted to enthrall the girl, but she'd made the mistake of stopping in at the office one night while the hunger was on her. Aaron wasn't scheduled to work that evening, but she had stored her gym bag in the office while she went running in the nearby gardens. 
Erin had come back to the office flushed and sweating, and the smell of her had overwhelmed Miriam's self-restraint. She'd had enough presence of mind to seduce the girl rather than taking her blood by force, so at least she had spared her the terror and violation of blood rape, but she had still been forced to bind Erin to herself to guarantee her silence. Malcolm let out a low whistle. Seven thralls, he said, in a tone of pride and quiet amazement. And they all remain loyal to you? No jealousy or feelings of ill use that might pollute the sharing? None, sir. They're all very satisfied with their position. All very satisfied, very contented slaves, powerless to resist me, and too caught up in their worship of me to try. Great Maker, help me. I understand now. This is the temptation that corrupted the gods themselves. Excellent. If Miriam's inner turmoil had betrayed itself at all, he gave no sign of it. It's very important to keep them that way, Miriam. A well-tended coterie isn't just a status symbol. It's the key to our survival. I've seen too many vampires driven mad because they allowed resentment or terror to take root in their thralls. Fear sweetens the blood, but the cost of it is too great. The sharing affects you just as much as it affects them. The only way to safely maintain your power over them is to make certain that they see you as God and Master, the giver of all good things. Miriam marveled at how easily he said this, as if the act of subjugating another sentient being to one's will had as little moral significance as the pruning of a hedge. This creature has lived so long with power that he no longer questions his right to use it. The fact that you've been able to maintain such a large coterie at such a young age is proof of your potential. You'll go far in the organization. I've no doubt of it. I'm very proud of you. Miriam felt the thrill of pleasure at such lavish praise and immediately hated herself for it. Thank you, sir. Malcolm took another sip of his brandy, then paused with the snifter in hand. He held it up and watched how the amber liquid caught the light. He frowned, apparently spotting a smudge on the crystal, because he pulled out a handkerchief and started polishing it. I wonder if you think you might be able to handle a couple of additions to that coterie of yours. Miriam shifted in her seat. Is this why he summoned me? To entrust me with more of his cast-offs? I believe so. It would depend on their personalities, how well they blended with the rest of my house, and how much they have been reduced to soul-dead wreckage. Oh, somehow I doubt that will be a problem here. You've already demonstrated your capacity to work with them, and quite effectively. He smiled, showing the tips of his fangs. I want the telepaths who took part in the break-in at Viscount. Miriam sat up in alarm. Her body did not respond with a cold chill, but she felt it in her spirit just the same. You want them, my lord? Yes. Oh, not to kill them, of course. That would be a waste of resources, and I'm not in the habit of being wasteful. No, I want them under your control and answerable to me. His eyes and voice hardened just a little. Their raid has cost me face in my dealings with the other princes. An affront like that cannot be allowed to go unanswered. If I can parade them before the Queen's court, a pair of domesticated telepaths bound to a member of my house, then that will make up for everything I have lost and more. I understand, my lord. Miriam swallowed once, her throat feeling suddenly dry. 
Will you need me to bring in the runner Callie Linder as well? Malcolm looked surprised. What? No, no. (laughs) Miss Linder was just doing her job. The kind of daring she displayed deserves to be rewarded. No, Miriam, my organization needs the runners as much as anyone else. I will not become known as the man who would launch vendettas on the hired help. Miriam nodded once. I understand, sir. Good. Malcolm pursed his lips, clearly thinking. How is the Hive coming along and decrypting the files they stole from us? Slowly, but they are making progress. I have managed to keep most of the information contained here in Metamore, ostensibly for security reasons. Their inability to draw on the other Hives for help has slowed them down, but I expect a breakthrough soon in spite of my efforts to contain it. Understandable. Still, the leader of the decryption project, Brian Summers, I believe you said his name was? He was one of the agents on the ground in the Viscount operation, yes? Yes, my lord. And the other? Fiona Hin Connell, my lord. Brian's wife. Only one of them, but I'm not going to volunteer that. Malcolm's predatory smile returned. Excellent. Then we shall redeem our reputation in the Queen's Court and hinder our enemies in a single stroke. He rose to his feet in front of her, setting aside the cigar and sniffed her. Kneel, Miriam. Miriam did so quickly, her body trembling in anticipation. Malcolm bared his arm and brought out his letter opener. She was expecting another small incision on the palm, a token blood gift, a brief moment of ecstasy to reward her for her faithful service. Her eyes widened when instead he used the blade to open a vein in his wrist. Blood oozed forth and quickly began filling his palm. I bestow this gift on you to empower you to fulfill my commands. Drink, child. She did so eagerly, taking his hand in hers and sucking up the blood with her lips. Ecstasy exploded across her senses as raw power filled her undead body, supercharging her already formidable abilities. She felt Malcolm's mind enfolding hers, imposing his will upon her, and she felt herself submitting to that will and embracing her position of service within the hierarchy. Part of her still despised him, still hated herself and her servile fawning before this man who was not a man. But above those thoughts was the same sense of rightness that she had felt when Lena had submitted to her. That warm, contented feeling flooded through her as she accepted the gift of her master's blood, telling her that this was where she belonged, the purpose for which she existed. The hierarchy of blood was more than a chain of command. It was the foundation of life itself, binding everyone it touched into proper, orderly relationships of master and servant. Her reservations and objections faded into insignificance before that one crucial fact. Why should Malcolm question his right to rule? The power in his blood silenced any doubts she might have had. He was the master, and her only regret was that all mortals could not find the purpose and pleasure of service to him. The vein closed of its own volition, stopping the flow of blood. Miriam licked up the last traces of it before raising her eyes to gaze on the master. He ran his hand through her hair fondly as the last vestiges of the blood ecstasy shuddered through her. Go now, my pet. Capture Brian Summers and Fiona Hinconnell. Break the resistance, bind them to your will, and when you have succeeded, when they will worship at your feet and beg to give you their blood. Then... 
bring them to me, and I will make a spectacle of them before my rivals. He smiled. Give me this, and that will be all the vengeance I desire. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. When I think of fan fiction, I usually think, well, let's just say that quality is not the first thing I think of. Codename Starkeeper blew me away. Starkeeper brings back the magic of Star Wars. The great story from somebody with more knowledge, love, and respect for the original trilogy than George Lucas himself. The wide-eyed wonder that I felt when I first saw it as a very young child. The characters are colorful and engaging. The quality of the writing, production, and the acting are all top-notch. The soaring excitement of when the Millennium Falcon first took off. The action is gripping and the humor is spot-on. I only have one problem. You're only producing eight episodes. This isn't just a worthy fan production. It's the best new Star Wars story to come along in years. Codename Starkeeper is my favorite full cast fan fiction podcast. Bravo to Indiana Jim and his entire cast. The force is definitely strong with them. Star Wars, Codename Starkeeper. Winner of six Star Wars FanWorks Fan Audio Awards, including Best Audio Drama, Best Director Jim Perry, and Best Mixer, Joe Harrison. Available now in all eight episodes. 100% podcaster babble-free. At www.indianagym.net and starwarsfanworks.com. Legend speaks of a time when unwisdom will rule the land. An age of misunderstanding with little hope or depth of insight. The legend also tells of a coming together of seers and prophets who hold in their collective answers to the great questions hewn from classic movies. In February 2009, the collective will share their wisdom in the month of many mouths we will hear and learn so come sit at the feet of Nathan Lowell JC Hutchins Mer Lafferty T Morris Philippa Ballantyne Michael Spence PG Hollyfield and Scott Sigler. To be enwisdomed, please come to moviemantras.com and start your voyage to a higher state. Hi, this is Mark Smith of well, no podcast in particular, really. And you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Mark. And all right, folks, it's a quarter to four in the morning here in the Pacific time zone. And I am done. <laughs> this is a long chapter. I hope you guys appreciate the extra big chunk of story that you got today. And hopefully that will f- make you guys forgive me for cliffhangering you again. Yes, I'm a bastard, but you know you love it. 
Before I get out of here, I want to thank the voice of young Fiona. It was played by Thomas Reed's daughter, whose name is being withheld for privacy reasons. I actually got two really good auditions for this part. One was from Nobilis's daughter, Lava Spout, and the other was from Thomas's daughter. They both gave me really good performances on this, and I ended up going with Thomas's daughters because she just sounded closer to the way that young Fiona sounded in my head. But I definitely appreciate Lava Spout uh, giving her time to audition for this part as well, and I will definitely be looking to use her again in future stories. All right, feedback. If you guys would like to sound off on what you're hearing on the show, you can reach us at the voicemail line, which is 206-203-0994. That is 206-203-0994. You can also email your comments in text or audio to feedback at metamorecity.com. You can join our Facebook group, Fans of Metamore City. You can post to the fan-driven forums, which are at thecursed.org, or you can just leave your messages on the blog at metamorcity.com. Always look forward to hearing what people have to say. There will be another feedback show probably in about three weeks. It's going to be hosted by me and Dan Sawyer and our good friend Gail Carriger, the author of the upcoming novel Soulless, which will be coming out in paperback from Orbit in October. Looks like a really fun little blend of steampunk Victorian with vampires in a comedic farce. Yes, it looks like this is going to be much silliness and a lot of fun. And I know Gail personally, and she is a wonderful human being. And I can't wait to see what she comes up with with this story, because it sounds like an absolute blast. But she's going to be joining us for the next Feedback Show, adding her thoughts to what she has styled the intellectual salon that is me and Dan and Kitty. So come tune in for that. And so send in your comments now and any time in the next couple of weeks if you would like to be included in that show. should be a lot of fun. Don't forget, we are still receiving entries for the Metamore City Fan Fiction Contest. I'm going to be accepting entries anytime between now and the beginning of May. Turn in your short story in the Metamore City universe, ideally between 3,000 and 5,000 words, so that it will fit in one episode nicely. Then the stories that I like the best are going to be featured in between the end of Season 1, which will be when Making the Cut wraps up, and the start of Season 2, which will be on 090909. That is the date of the podcaster triple threat when I, Dan Sawyer, and Pip Ballantyne are all going to be launching our new patio book projects. So, if you'd like to have your story considered for the contest, send it in now. The author whose story I like the best will win a free Metamore City t-shirt of their choice from the Metamore City gift shop at zazzle.com slash cwlester. That's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash C-W-L-E-S-T-E-R. Check it out. We've got some cool designs there. That'll do it for these two weeks. I'm going to shut this down, get this episode uploaded, and then try to get some sleep. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. 
at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. <laughs>